A federal judge writes that former President Donald Trump likely broke the law in his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's Monday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the judge's ruling in a civil case brought by the House January 6th Committee, which is expected to hear from Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, on Thursday. Also this hour, Florida governor signs a controversial bill into law restricting teaching about sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. We will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination. And the massive lockdown in Shanghai amid China's near zero COVID policy. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's out with a budget blueprint, $5.8 trillion for the 2023 fiscal year on his priorities, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, domestic spending programs and billions, $795 billion for defense as the U.S. and allies send more help to Ukraine. But in the Q&A portion of the news conference today, Biden was immediately peppered with questions about his comments in Warsaw that worried allies in Europe. He said Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power. Well, today he sought to clarify that sentiment was personal. It means that I would hope he, I just it was expressing my outrage. He shouldn't remain in power. Just like, you know, bad people shouldn't continue to do bad things. But it doesn't mean we have a fundamental policy to do anything to take Putin down in any way. When Biden was asked if he was ready to meet with Putin, the president said it depends on what the Russian leader wants to talk about. The two leaders met face to face in Geneva last year. A senior U.S. defense official says the U.S. continues to send weapons and other military assistance into western Ukraine on a daily basis. NPR's Greg Meyer reports Russia has warned against such help but has not been able to stop it. Russia is conducting multiple missile strikes in western Ukraine, but this is not disrupting the flow of U.S. weapons, the U.S. official says. The U.S. is now sending weapons that are part of an $800 million package announced by the Biden administration just 12 days ago. The U.S. official declined to provide details, but most weapons are believed to cross into Ukraine from its western border with Poland. They include missiles to be used against Russian tanks and planes, as well as a new item, small armed drones a soldier can carry in a backpack. Meanwhile, some of the heaviest fighting in Ukraine continues around the besieged southern port city of Mariupol. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says it's launching a formal review following the unscripted drama at night last night's Academy Awards when actor Will Smith slapped and cursed at comedian Chris Rock on stage. Here's NPR's Mandalit del Barco. The Academy of Motion Pictures issued a statement saying it did not condone any violence, but Will Smith was allowed to accept his Best Actor Oscar for his role in the film King Richard. In his acceptance speech, he alluded to his reaction to a joke Chris Rock had made about his wife Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to my, all my fellow nominees. Smith didn't apologize to Rock. Later, Los Angeles police said the comedian did not press any assault charges, and Smith was seen celebrating. 
The incident has sparked conversations about topics such as dealing with alopecia, which Smith's wife has been open about, and whether the actor should face consequences for lashing out. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. There is no timeline for when MBTA officials will allow inspectors into the subway tunnels beneath the government center parking garage that partially collapsed over the weekend. The collapse killed Peter Monsini, a member of the demolition crew. As WBUR's Dave Fanoff reports, safety inspections are required before the T will resume orange and green line service in that area. Before any inspectors can get into the tunnels, debris must be removed from the garage that partially collapsed, and the building's stability must be ensured. T General Manager Steve Poftak says only then will experts be allowed to check the tunnels. That will be a combination, obviously, of visual inspection, measurement, and to the extent that we need to use other technologies, we will. We'll be using not only our own internal inspectors, but we are bringing in outside consultants as well. Poptak says inspectors will have detailed tunnel measurements, so they'll be able to tell if there has been any movement inside of them. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Meantime, Monsini's family says they are in shock. A statement from the family says the 51-year-old was someone who is full of life, passionate, and thoughtful, and will be deeply missed. The statement goes on to thank first responders who went to his aid and well-wishers. State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz's gubernatorial campaign is accusing Attorney General Maura Healey of dodging her request for debates. The two are seeking the Democratic nomination for governor. Last week, Chang-Diaz called on Healey to participate in three debates prior to the party's June convention. In a statement, the Healey campaign says she looks forward to participating in forums and debates before the September primary, but that statement did not specifically address the request for three debates before June. In sports, Celtics are at the Toronto Raptors tonight. Red Sox and Bruins are both off, both back tomorrow. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of snow showers, lows dropping only a few degrees to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the upper 30s, and Wednesday, sunny and warmer, highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. The Democratic-led Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has obtained text messages sent from a conservative activist to a Trump aide. Those messages called for overturning the 2020 presidential election and promoted debunked conspiracy theories. But this was no ordinary activist sending the text. This was Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Tonight, Benny Thompson, the chairman of the committee, is expected to recommend seeking her cooperation in its investigation. NPR congressional reporter Claudia Grisales has been closely following this investigation, mm-hmm. and she joins me now. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Kelsey. So it's already been a very busy day for the January 6th committee. So let's start with Ginny Thomas. 
What's the committee expected to do now? The panel is expected to meet tonight privately to discuss their next steps after it was revealed Jenny Thompson had been texting former chief of staff for Trump. This is Mark Meadows Mm. after the 2020 election to push efforts to overturn the results. And as you've mentioned, Thompson, the chairman, this is uh, the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, will recommend to the full committee that they should pursue her cooperation. The panel's already meeting publicly this evening to take up criminal contempt referrals against two former Trump officials who have not cooperated with committee subpoenas. This is ex-trade advisor Peter Navarro and former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino, and both have been defiant about this plan. But then after this committee vote, the panel's expected to meet in private soon after to discuss Ginny Thompson and how she should be asked, if it's voluntary or even by subpoena. So this is pretty uncharted territory, right? Could seeking her co- you know, cooperation here be problematic? Yes, this is extraordinary for Congress to seek testimony from the spouse of a sitting Supreme Court right. justice. So it's not completely clear exactly what the next steps are for the panel in terms of how Thomas responds as she and Justice Thomas have so far declined to comment publicly on all this. And there was a ruling today in another part of the committee's investigation. A federal judge ordered that more than 100 emails from attorney John Eastman about getting the election overturned be given to the committee. So what was the significance of this decision? This is a pretty big victory for the panel. They had made these bombshell claims in this case that former President Trump likely committed crimes in an effort to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress to certify President Joe Biden's win January 6th of last year. They made these claims because Eastman, who had been working with Trump's team and shared memos on how to overturn those results, he was trying to block the committee from obtaining some of his past emails. And so this ruling is significant because not only did the judge rule in the committee's favor to order these emails to be turned over, but they agree there was evidence of illegal activity on the president's part in connection with January 6th. And the, yeah, so it's a lot. And the committee has already toyed with this idea that it could issue a criminal referral against Trump. And it also ramps up the pressure on the Justice Department to look into these specific claims. It has been a busy day, but we've learned the committee could speak with Trump's son-in-law, the former White House senior advisor, Jared Kushner. Is that this week as well? That could be this week as well, yes. So it's a lot going on. Uh, we've confirmed this is an ABC report that came up earlier today, and we have learned from sources that the panel has Kushner down to appear before the committee on Thursday. Of course, this could change, but it's one of the more high-profile witnesses they could see. We should note already the committee in January asked Ivanka Trump, this is Kushner's wife, and also a former senior White House advisor to appear before the panel. And for months now, the panel's chairman has said that they remained engaged in talks, but nothing had come to fruition yet. They had also asked Chairman Thompson at the time if Jared Kushner was of interest. And while he waved it off then, He and other members have long maintained that they are willing to talk to whoever is willing to come before them to talk about January 6th. There's a lot going on with this committee. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. All right, to Lviv now, a city in western Ukraine that has been peaceful for much of the war. But over the weekend, Russian missiles rattled Lviv residents when they struck military targets there. Lviv is home to Ivanka Honak. She worked as a tour guide in her beloved home city for 15 years. 
Honak says she knows the story behind practically every stone and every wall of the city and has written guidebooks about Lviv. We spoke to her just a couple days before she and her three children boarded the first train evacuating people out of Lviv. They are in southern Germany now, which is where Ivanka Honak joins us today. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being with us again. Where exactly in southern Germany are you right now? I understand that you and your kids are in a hotel? Uh, yes, we are in a beautiful luxury hotel. We were welcomed here by the owner in a small resort city surrounded with mountains and by the lake. How has it been adjusting to life in Germany for you and your kids? Well, we had relatives here in Munich. It's around one hour drive oh. from uh, this town. Uh, first couple of days, they provided us the shelter, but then they welcomed another family and we had to find new place. Yeah. May I ask, what what is it like to leave a city that you are so connected to behind. I mean, you made it your job to show people every day what is beautiful about Lviv. What is it like to walk away from your home city? It's absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. Um, it's like all my life I was investing in, in the city. And uh, I was uh, deeply, I'm still, I am connected to my city no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I'm planning to go back. My children, they still cry about Lviv. Even the youngest, she's three years old. And she... Uh, I think I hear she her. She says, I want... Yeah, actually. <laughs> it's... <laughs> yeah. it's okay if you need to take um, a moment. That's okay. okay. Um, she says, Mom, when we're back to my kindergarten with my favorite teacher, with my favorite children... And when those uh, enemies are going back to their country, she's three and she already understands so many things. Yeah. We all want home. Well, at the moment, what are your plans for the near future, for you and your kids? Uh, there's two sides of the coin. My kids are very happy here. The utmost uh, warm welcome that we received here. You said there were two sides to the coin. What's the other yeah. side? It sounds like your ha your kids are, generally speaking, happy for now. But what's the other side of the coin yeah. for you? Uh, well, uh, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely not happy because uh, I don't feel like I can be a financial burden for Germany. And I don't want to be that financial burden. Uh, so in uh, about a month, I'm about to search for a job and uh, I cannot do that scientific work uh, here as I was doing in Lviv. Uh, the, the guide has to feel the place with the heart and I'm just, right. just looking around. But we hope that um, in two, three or four months, the war will be over. We hope so. Uh, and I'm about to take the underqualified job in the hotel or tourism industry. Mm -hmm. And part of my salary would go to Ukrainian army. And I can be a soldier here. Well, Ivanka, when this war does eventually end, do you see yourself moving back to Lviv one day? Um, 
I hope yes. I hope yes. I'm determined so. I know that life is unpredictable, but I hope that I'll have the chance to come back to Ukraine because Ukraine needs me and I need it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. That is Ivanka Honak, recently a tour guide in Lviv, speaking to us from southern Germany, where she now lives. Thank you so much for being with us again, Ivanka. Thank you so much as well. Florida's governor signed a controversial bill today. It bans all instruction on sexual identity or gender in schools from kindergarten through third grade. It's called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Critics call it the, quote, don't say gay bill, and it's drawn national attention to Florida, including last night at the Academy Awards from co-host Wanda Sykes. For you people in Florida, we're going to have a gay night. Gay, gay, gay. NPR's Greg Allen has more. Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill today before an audience of students and supporters at a charter school near Tampa. It takes aim at how schools deal with sexual orientation and gender identity. He says the bill, now law, is about ensuring parents are involved in the education, health care, and well-being of their children. I don't care what corporate media outlets say. I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I'm not backing down. DeSantis and other supporters of the new law say the label Don't Say Gay is deliberately misleading. Although the law bans instruction dealing with sexual orientation, they say students and even teachers can use the word gay if it's an informal classroom discussion. DeSantis charges that opponents are hiding what he calls their true intentions. They support sexualizing kids in kindergarten. They support injecting woke gender ideology into second grade classrooms. Democrats and civil rights groups say the law is an attack on the LGBTQ community. Here's Joe Saunders with the advocacy group Equality Florida. It stigmatizes the LGBTQ community, chills efforts to create inclusive school environments, and isolates LGBTQ young people who are already at staggeringly higher risk of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation than their peers. Saunders believes by signing the law, DeSantis hopes to build his support among Republican voters in a possible bid for the 2024 presidential nomination. The law goes into effect July 1st, but is likely to face legal challenges. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Philadelphia broke its all-time record for homicides last year. So the police department there is trying a new strategy, focus on the shootings that don't kill anyone. How that strategy will work tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, looking back at a year of Texas's Operation Lone Star, the effort to crack down on people crossing the border illegally, coming up here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In business news, new figures show the state added nearly 15,000 jobs last month, dropping the unemployment rate slightly. The State Office of Labor and Workforce Development reports the unemployment rate fell to 4.7 percent in February, down from 4.8 in January. Nearly every sector saw growth, with the exception of financial activities and professional and business services. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. The Dow was up 94 points at 34,955. NASDAQ rose 185 points to 14,354. And the S&P 500 gained 32 points to end the day at 4,575. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb, and Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com slash network. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy skies. Tonight could see a snow shower in the early evening with temperatures down in the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the upper 30s. Wednesday, mostly sunny again as we start to warm up with highs in the upper 40s. And Thursday, mostly cloudy. Rain later in the day, low 60s. Right now, 31 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell. And I'm Elsa Chang. It has been a year since Texas launched Operation Lone Star. That is Governor Greg Abbott's hardline border crackdown on undocumented immigration. To mark the anniversary earlier this month, Governor Abbott gushed about its achievements. Operation Lone Star has apprehended more than 200,000 illegal immigrants. That includes more than 9,000 felony charges and more than 11,000 criminal arrests. Those numbers that Abbott just touted make it sound like Operation Lone Star is working as intended. But how real are those numbers? Well, that is what Loami Creel dug into in a recent story for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So before we get into those specific numbers, can you just first explain what the overall goal is of Operation Lone Star? So Texas Governor Greg Abbott said it was to stop the flow of drugs and migrants into the state. And so the operation started off small in South Texas, but then massively ballooned over the past year. Okay, so what did you actually find when you started examining these numbers that the state is announcing for all the arrests of undocumented immigrants and drug seizures? What we found during our investigation was that their claims of success has been based on shifting metrics, that included crimes with no connection to the border, work conducted by troopers stationed there prior to the operation, and arrests and drug seizures that don't clearly distinguish the state's role from other agencies. Okay, so if you start subtracting the cases that you found questionable, how many cases are we talking about here that were a result of Operation Lone Star? We know that the numbers that the governor is citing doesn't take into consideration the more than 2,000 charges they later removed in December after we started asking them about it. Hmm. And of that number, the felonies that he is citing, many of those crimes occurred hundreds of miles from the border and have no connection to the border or illegal immigration. The crime that does have a tie to illegal immigration is prosecuting migrants for trespassing across private ranches. It's a misdemeanor. 
And that misdemeanor makes up about 40% of the operation since July. Huh. And how did the state explain what you found? The state explained to us that they were instructed last July to start counting most crimes in a 63-county region that is almost the size of Oregon. And those crimes, they said, were related to the border mission because it is within that area of interest for them. But when we delved a little bit deeper, we found many crimes that had absolutely no link to the border. Well, putting aside these potentially inflated numbers, is this program in any way actually slowing down illegal immigration or drug smuggling in Texas in any trackable way? Like, is there any credit that this program does does deserve? So not according to the metrics that we have been able to measure. For instance, the number of immigrants crossing into Texas hasn't particularly slowed down while the operation has been in effect. So, you know, the, the governor and the state claim that they're making a dent in human smuggling, drug trafficking, and, and deterrence. But that is not what we have been able to find so far. That is Loami Creel, a reporter with the ProPublica Texas Tribune Investigative Unit. This investigation was co-published with the Marshall Project. Thanks very much for your reporting. Thanks so much for having me. In the 1800s, the man known as the father of gynecology advanced the field through painful experiments on enslaved women. Now, three of those women, known by the names Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, are being celebrated as the mothers of gynecology. Recently, women's health professionals gathered at an art installation made in their honor. Cristela Guerra has more from Montgomery, Alabama. Are you ready? We yes. don't let nobody Artist Michelle Browder leads the women in a song as they walk to the park, gathering in a circle around these towering mothers. On their bodies are names like Angela Davis, Serena Williams. Words like beauty and resilience are welded to their sides, while African beads adorn their necks. All of these women are bigger than life for me, right? So Anarka is 15 feet tall. Betsy is about... I think she's 12, and, and Lucy is nine feet tall. Anarka's hips are crafted from the spades of shovels. She faces the sky, defiant and hopeful. At the center of her body, her womb is a chasm for the world to see. Visitors place flowers at the feet of the sculptures. This is, after all, what doulas and midwives do. They protect mothers. We see our clients in this art, and we see the losses, we see the victories, we see the ones that make it just by the skin of their teeth. Um, and we see the fear. The it's, fear it's all right. here. It's all here. It's all here. Denise Bolds, president of Doulas of North America, Erdona International, and former president Reve Sinclair want to empower families, to provide comfort, to see problems others might ignore, to call out the truth, which is that black mothers die in childbirth at disproportionate rates and are three to four times more likely to suffer complications during pregnancy. I had a mother message me this morning. She says, I have seven days to my expected due date. And I said, you made it, and you will continue to make it. She's with us because she's afraid to die. And I said, not on our watch. Brothers thought about Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy since she was 18. That's when she learned about how a white doctor named J. Marion Sims experimented on the bodies of enslaved black women without anesthesia. He claimed to have cured them of ailments that arose from pregnancy. So Broder took the tool he invented, the speculum, 
and created a tiara for Betsy's head. They were birthed out of pain, but also because I wanted to change the narrative. I wanted to change the conversation about black women in this country and what we have to contribute in the infant mortality rate and reproductive justice and maternal health. Conversations happened over two days inside Old Ship AME Zion Church. The conference was called the Day of Reckoning. They listened to Deirdre Cooper Owens, a historian of U.S. slavery medicine, describe how this legacy of medical racism persists. And so the embodied experiences of the legacy of medical racism is that we're not believed. We're thought to be able to withstand pain more. And class doesn't protect you. Education doesn't protect you. Your relationship status doesn't protect you. One of the last speakers was Charles Johnson, an Atlanta-based father who began the nonprofit For Kira for Moms after the loss of his wife from hemorrhage following the birth of their second son. In 2018, Johnson worked with lawmakers to pass the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act, which provides funding to better investigate and review incidents of maternal mortality. As we work to protect women and babies and put it into the maternal mortality crisis, it's also equally as important, if not more as important, that we protect our history and that these stories are told. There's a line Michelle Browder uses for the Mothers of Gynecology. It's from the playwright Antazaki Shange's work for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. It reads, let her be born. Let her be born and handled warmly. For NPR News, I'm Cristela Guerra. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the lockdown of Shanghai, one of China's biggest cities in the latest chapter of China's zero-COVID policy. Also why the U.S. is in the midst of an historic housing crunch. That's all coming up. In sports, the Celtics will be without center Robert Williams as the regular season nears its end. Team says Williams tore his left meniscus in yesterday's game against the Timberwolves. There is no timetable yet for his return. In the forecast, mostly cloudy today with a chance of a few snow showers. Lows dropping only a few degrees to the low 30s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Rank the top Northeast graduate school for entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. Spring break season is here, and with COVID cases waning, Americans are flying again. The demand is higher than it has ever been. Travelers have been waiting to go on some of these bucket list trips since you know, summer of 2019 and 2020. Still with high gas prices and a war in Ukraine, airlines face a bumpy ride ahead. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is defending comments he made about Russian President Vladimir Putin during an address in Poland on Saturday. In a speech, Biden said Putin cannot remain in power. Today at the White House, Biden said he was not calling for a regime change, but voicing his personal opinion about the ongoing violence in Ukraine. I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is 
dealing and the actions of this man, just, just brutality of half the children in Ukraine. I had just come from being with those families. And, uh, and so, uh, but I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. Biden was asked by reporters if he would be open to meeting with the Russian leader. He said it depends on what he wants to talk about. Russia remains at odds with the West over a gas payment mechanism. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports Moscow is demanding that European countries pay for gas exports in rubles, but G7 nations are rejecting that. Moscow said it will not supply gas to Europe for free as it works out methods for accepting payments for its gas exports in rubles. At a meeting of European Union leaders on Friday, no common position emerged on Russia's demand last week that, quote, unfriendly countries must pay for its gas in rubles, not euros, in the wake of the U.S. and EU allies teaming up on a series of sanctions aimed at Russia after it invaded Ukraine. The Russian central bank and energy giant Gazprom, which accounts for 40 percent of European gas imports, have been asked to present their proposals for ruble gas payments to Russian President Vladimir Putin by Thursday. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 94 points, closing at 34,955. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Federal safety authorities are investigating the partial collapse of the government center parking garage that killed a construction worker Saturday. The garage is being demolished and replaced with high-rise office space and residential units. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston the city will review the federal report and existing safety policies. And that in particular, the legislation and the ordinances that have been passed um, in previous years responding to horrific preventable tragedies uh, are being fully enforced. Service on the T's green and orange lines through the area has been suspended. Those suspensions are expected to last several days. The T says crews need to remove debris and ensure the garage has been stabilized before inspectors can get into the subway tunnels beneath the structure. Meantime, Wu is clarifying that North End restaurant owners have some options as they face a new fee to host outdoor dining this year. She says restaurants can pay the $7,500 fee in monthly payments rather than upfront. Mayor says another option is to pay a prorated fee if they only have outdoor dining for a few months of the season. Who says there will also be a process where restaurants can seek hardship waivers. Some restaurant owners say they will pursue legal action against the city for imposing the fee. The mayor says the fees needed to deal with traffic and trash generated by outdoor dining in the neighborhood. Some Massachusetts prisons fell short in handling the coronavirus pandemic and neglected prisoners who are disabled or medically vulnerable. That's according to a report issued today by the Disability Law Center. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The report examined coronavirus mitigation efforts within specialized medical units at state prisons in Norfolk and Shirley. It found the Department of Correction did not adequately protect prisoners with disabilities in those two prisons from a resurgence of the virus. Tatum Pritchard is interim executive director of the Disability Law Center. We hope that releasing this report increases the public understanding and also encourages the Department of Correction 
to do better. In response to the investigation, the Department of Corrections said it did not support the findings and it followed public health guidelines during the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Center for Professional Education, offering certificates in real estate studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar tomorrow, Tuesday, March 29th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a snow shower in the early evening with temperatures down in the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the upper 30s. Right now, it is 30 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. China has been grappling for weeks with its biggest wave of COVID-19 since the early days in the pandemic two years ago. And starting today, the government imposed a lockdown in the city of Shanghai. It is a big step for a big city. We are joined by NPR China affairs correspondent John Ruich to tell us more about it. Hi, John. Hey, Kelsey. So, John, to start with, Shanghai is massive. How is this going to work? Yeah, Shanghai is one of the biggest cities in the world. It's got roughly 26 million people. That's more than Florida, uh, more than all of Australia. The city is basically bisected by a river called the Huangpu River. That's where its iconic skyline is with the colonial buildings and the forest of skyscrapers. You may have seen pictures. Basically, they're going to use that river as a dividing line. So starting today, half of the city, the east side for the most part, is shut down. And five days from now, the west side is going to be locked down for five days. Uh, Everyone will have to stay at home during the lockdown. They're going to have to stay indoors. Uh, Basic necessities will be delivered to the neighborhoods. There's no public transport. The bridges and tunnels across across that river are closed and everyone's subject to mass testing. This sounds incredibly complicated. How are people there reacting to this? Well, there's been a little bit of panic. Uh, There have been some videos that have popped up on social media showing empty store shelves. Um, People are panic buying, scrambling to buy whatever they, whatever food and supplies they can. Um, I saw a video that looked like a full-fledged brawl in a grocery store where two men were basically screaming at each other and swinging fists. I mean, to be at this point two plus years into this pandemic is clearly frustrating to some people. And that's because Shanghai's done a great job, really. It's never really been on the front lines of the pandemic until now. Uh, The government tried to avoid a big lockdown. It took more of a scalpel approach, but um, ultimately felt that a bigger tool was needed. So what is the impact of all of this going to be? So as I said, China's approach has been very aggressive to this pandemic. It's involved strict border controls and mass testing and lockdowns. We've seen it play out elsewhere time and again. And I spoke about this with Mary Lovely, who's a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So far, there has been a cost, clearly. It's been borne by individuals, by local areas, you know, being forced to stay in your apartment for two weeks and not knowing where your food's going to come from. You know, these are high costs for the Chinese people. 
but that has not been transmitted to the rest of the world. And she means in a transmitted in a really big way. Shanghai is an important industrial center. It's got a huge service economy, China's biggest port, China's most important stock exchanges. Companies are going to feel this, and they are already. Uh, Bloomberg reports that Tesla halted manufacturing at its new factory. Shanghai Disneyland's been closed. And to highlight how the concerns are sort of rippling outward, the global price of crude oil ticked down on the news because tra traders were fearful that uh, demand would slow down because of the Shanghai lockdown. So does this shutdown of Shanghai say anything about China's broader COVID policy? It does. Uh, China has, you know, relatively low case numbers and deaths because of its willingness to employ these sort of what some might call draconian measures, these vast lockdowns. I asked Yan Zhonghuang about this. He's a China health expert at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he says the Omicron wave and the Shanghai lockdown show again that, you know, despite the government's attempts to, you know, move away from zero COVID, they have low tolerance. And, and he thinks almost certainly they're going to succeed in, in containing this outbreak in Shanghai. But the thing is that it, it won't eradicate the virus. So it's just a matter of time for them to be hit by another uh, wave of the outbreak. Yeah, and he says he thinks the socioeconomic costs are going up for China. NPR's John Ruich, thank you. Thank you. When the TV network Black News Channel launched two years ago, the journalists there hoped to cover stories in a different way. At the time, they said they were, quote, dedicated to covering the unique perspectives, challenges, and successes of black and brown communities. BNC's CEO then shocked employees last week when he announced that the network would be shutting down immediately. Here to explain BNC's downfall is Rodney Ho. He's an entertainment reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who's been covering the story, and he joins us now. Welcome. How are you doing? Great. Well, if you could just give us a little more about the origin story of BNC, like who launched it exactly? It was actually uh, the Congressman J.C. Watts uh, came up with the idea and hooked up with this Pakistani billionaire, uh, Jackson Jaguar's owner, Shad Khan. And uh, he was willing to put up quite a bit of money to start up the operation. Uh, they started, I think, officially in 2020, right before the pandemic, probably not the greatest time. And they focused on basic cable channels. They, they got decent distribution. I think they got into over 50 million households. Wow. Um, and they also brought in Prince L. Hare, who is a veteran cable news network executive. He worked at CNN and he took over last year. It was really ambitious. He hired uh, Mark Lamont Hill, the commentator, he, the New York Times columnist uh, Charles Blow was also given a primetime show. Uh, so, so they wanted to make it big. And how did BNC try to differentiate itself from the rest of the media landscape? Like how specifically? I, I mean, I think by dint of its title, Black News Channel, they took everything through the lens of the uh, black community and how it impacted them, you know, and it, it's interesting that they had their highest ratings just last week with Kentaji Brown Jackson's confirmation. Uh, unfortunately, I guess by then the money had started running out to try and build up this operation without getting enough of an audience. And can we talk about that? Like, yeah, over the recent months, BNC went through several rounds of layoffs, ultimately culminating in this announcement that the network's going to shut down entirely. Like, what caused all of this? It may be the fundamental issue that a lot of the people who follow news, uh, they get their news from social media. Um, they, you know, they get their news from YouTube and Instagram. Um, basic cable may have been a great idea to launch a basic cable network in 1992. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not the right vehicle. <laughs> 
for to catch people. And even though it wasn't 50 million households, like I realized for me to find the channel, I had to go to like channel 270. I mean, wow. CNN and Fox News, they're on channel 44, 46. I'm not going to wander down into that area to try and find them. It's hard to, um, you know, to access them. Even if you technically had access, it's like being in the top shelf in a dusty corner of a, of a supermarket where nobody can see you. So you see this demise being more a symptom of there just isn't that big of an audience for any cable news network trying to start now, rather than specifically how BNC was run. It, it, you could argue either way. You could say that maybe they, they spent too much. That's, some people have argued that they, they tried to grow too quickly without putting in the proper marketing dollars to build awareness. Or maybe it was a fundamental issue of it wasn't the right place to build an operation. Maybe they should have focused on just doing a digital video operation. It would have been a lot cheaper. Well, then what's available now in the media landscape for black and brown audiences who are interested in learning about the news, but through a lens that is specific for them? They already exist, um, on, but most of them are online. I mean, The Griot, The Root, um, Roland Martin, who was actually offered a job at Black News Channel, but turned it down because they didn't offer him enough pay. He has his own uh, news operation. It, it's very small and grassroots, but he says it's profitable. Um, I think there are ways to get news out there in a, in a way that works and where the audience is. And unfortunately, the audience is not you know, the, especially younger audiences no longer on cable news or cable network systems. Rodney Hope is a reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's a historic shortage of homes in the U.S. Three million more homes are needed. It's a big part of why home prices are so high. NPR's Chris Arnold spoke to a builder to find out what's going on. A crew of workers is nail-gunning two-by-fours together. They're building an in-law apartment next to a house in a suburb outside Boston. This area is going to be living space on the ground floor with two rooms and a little kitchenette and a bathroom. Emerson Claus has been building homes for 45 years. He's walking around the newly poured concrete foundation. It's going to be a great uh, looking property at the end of the day. Claus is the president of the State Home Builders Association. So I wanted to find out from him what is going on. Why aren't more homes getting built? And one reason is the windows and skylights and fixtures going in here. It's taking a lot longer to get building materials like that. I had a client ask me to add a door. We just waited six months to get it. That's a door in a frame. That's kind of crazy. If you get into appliances right now, the the, uh, lead time for appliances is nuts. Um, Just to get like a a dishwasher or something. Dishwasher. If you can find the model you want right now, you might wait a year for it. But the real cause of the housing shortage goes way back before the COVID supply chain problems. Back to 2008, when we had the worst housing crash since the Great Depression. And a lot of builders went out of business and others struggled. A lot of my tradespeople found other work. Went and got um, uh, retrained for new jobs in law enforcement and uh, all sorts of jobs. And so the workforce was somewhat decimated, and it takes a long time to get back to that. So even as Americans started buying more homes again, buildings stayed below normal, and that went on for like a decade. Meanwhile, the biggest generation, the millennials, started to settle down, and we ended up millions of homes short of the demand. While that was happening, Claus managed to recover and hire more people again. Yeah, we always need guys, right, Em? Always. 
Rene Landeverdi is Claus's foreman. He's originally from El Salvador, and for the past 10 years, he's helped Claus and other local builders find a lot of other workers to hire and train. Actually, I've been bringing guys to companies, like maybe 200 guys and yeah. with he, the other company. He's actually brought everybody to the table here. You know, some are related to him, some are just, you know, old friends. Then COVID hit. Things shut down, some of those workers left, and now with unemployment so low, Landaverde can't find people to hire like he used to. It's a lot harder. Yeah, they've been finding other work. You know, if I had twice as many guys, I would still not have enough. And my subcontractors, they're all hurting for people. And there's another very big roadblock to home construction. Land, let's, I mean, land... I was just trying to buy a piece of land uh, to build five homes on it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the land went to somebody else that may put one or two on it. Claus says he wants to build more attached townhouses or smaller homes on less land. That's what many first-time homebuyers can afford to buy. But in many places, zoning rules won't let you buy land and divide it up like that. You can only build one house with a big yard. Where you know, you could have put six houses uh, in a, you know, a modern type community setting. So builders like Claus, to make a profit, are left often just buying one older home, knocking it down, and building a bigger, expensive new home. We are seeing a lot of knockdowns, but it doesn't add to the housing stock. You're replacing something. You're not adding to it, so the net effect isn't the best. As a result, right now, Claus doesn't have any new home projects lined up that will put a house in a place where there wasn't one already. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Just ahead on All Things Considered, how name, image, and likeness contracts are changing the landscape of collegiate sports with the athletics editor-in-chief for college football. Then next hour, the pushback against community bail funds. That and more coming up here on WBUR. In sports, top honors in women's hockey are on the line tonight. Boston Pride take on the Connecticut Whale for the championship of the Premier Hockey Federation. The Boston Pride are the reigning league champions. Members, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a quick snow shower or two. Lows dropping only a few degrees to the low 20s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Vivaldi's Gloria and J.S. and C.P.E. Bach, Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. From pet stores to grocery stores, people are being given the option to round up their purchases. Even though donating does have this positive feeling associated with it, they call that like warm glow, it, it is a financial loss to consumers. I'm Kai Rizdal of those consumer choices next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We're in the thick of NCAA's March Madness basketball tournaments, and the arenas have been feeling, dare I say, normal. The stands have been packed with fans back at full capacity for the first time in two years. But something new has been happening off the court, too. It's Selection Sunday, and Drew Timmy has a choice to make. Nah. Mm. No, no. That little shaving cream ad featuring Gonzaga basketball player Drew Timmy would not have been possible or legal last March Madness. See, the NCAA has never before allowed student-athletes to make money off their name, image, or likeness. Those deals are called NIL for short. That meant no sponsorships or endorsement deals, all while the NCAA made millions from March Madness. $850 million just from the TV rights to the men's tournaments last year. But then a Supreme Court case changed everything last year. Here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It does seem as that the schools are conspiring with competitors, agreeing with competitors, I'll say that, to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing. Last July, the court ruled that the NCAA could no longer limit student-athletes using their own name, image, or likeness. Seemingly overnight, thousands of student-athletes became brand ambassadors for companies like Nike, Yahoo, and Gatorade. And now to be an actual Gatorade athlete, it's, it's surreal to me. It's amazing. What does NCAA basketball star Buddy Beheim eat for breakfast? Try three swishes cereal. The good feet arch supports allow me to move swiftly, to have balance and stability. But here's the thing. Because NIL policies are brand new, they're still kind of like the wild, wild west. We're dealing with a highly unregulated system, and that has all sorts of dangers in it. That's Kendall Spencer, former student athlete and lawyer. He worries there aren't enough federal guidelines in place to protect college athletes. You know, when when a deal goes bad, who are the student athletes going to go after? Are they going to go after the institutions? Are they going to go after their agents? Spencer is especially concerned about students being exploited in a hyper-online world. You know, if I can't keep Adidas from just snatching a photo of me and putting it wherever they want to or anyone else on social media like Instagram, then how valuable really is this new ability? And there are other points of contention in the sports community, like the value of these deals and where that money is coming from. Those issues are at the center of Stuart Mandel's recent report about an unnamed football recruit who landed an $8 million NIL deal. He is editor-in-chief of college football at The Athletic. You know, obviously you guys spotlighted what NIL was intended to be used for, which is players can get a commercial or an endorsement and make a little bit of money, and I don't think anybody has any problem with that. But as is often the case in college football, people are looking for ways to exploit it and use it to get recruits to come to their school. And so um, what we've seen are these, what are being called NIL collectives that are basically, you know, boosters, donors uh, who are fans of a certain school rallying uh, other boosters and donors to to pool their money and use it to make big offers to, uh, you know, a five-star recruit that they want to come to their school. And in this case, they offered that player, and I saw that he signed it, a contract that is money we've never really heard of, for certainly for a college athlete. You say it's money we've never heard of for a college athlete. How far outside the norm is $8 million? <laughs> well, we know that last year Nick Saban, Alabama's coach, said that his star quarterback, Bryce Young, was making close to seven figures. 
We know that Quinn Ewers, a quarterback from Texas, uh, who first went to Ohio State and has now transferred back to Texas, uh, was making around a million, maybe a little over a million. So um, this contract will pay the player more than $2 million a year, uh, which could come out to over $8 million if he plays there for his whole career. Hmm. How evenly is this money generally spread across college sports? Like, are men's basketball and football kind of sucking up a lot of the oxygen here? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the, the, the big money is going toward, in general, football and men's basketball. Now, we have seen individual players, especially uh, in women's basketball, uh, gymnasts, um, volleyball, individual star players in those what we call non-revenue sports who are landing good endorsement deals. Uh, and that that is something that a lot of people saw coming and thought would be obviously um, – you know, a good a development uh, for these sports. But in general, it's football and men's basketball. College athletes have been pushing the NCAA to give them more power and autonomy for years on many different fronts. And the contracts that we're talking about are just one piece of that puzzle. How much more are players still hoping to get from the NCAA? Well, there are advocates out there who think the athletes should be full-on employees of the school. Um, there's, that's not necessarily a, a majority opinion. I think that's a very uh, contentious issue because then, then you really are turning college sports into professional sports. Players can be fired. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of implications of that. Uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't people that are still going to push for that. Would you say that on the whole, this shows that the NCAA is on the decline, is losing power? Is this a trend that's likely to continue? The NCAA has lost tremendous power over the last decade as they've lost several of these high-profile court cases. And, you know, I think the huge mistake the NCAA made was not reading the room and proactively developing their own policies that would have allowed for athletes to make this NIL compensation. And not a dollar, it doesn't, it's not costing their schools a dollar. These NIL deals are coming from third parties. Uh, but they fought and fought and fought in court and lost every case. And like you mentioned earlier, obviously culminating in the Supreme Court 9 nothing decision last year in the Alston antitrust case. And so because of that, nobody fears the NCAA anymore. Uh, that $8 million deal I talked about is pretty blatant buying a recruit, which is still very much against the rules. But clearly the parties involved don't fear that the NCAA is going to do anything about it. And so what do you think the next shoe to drop is going to be? You know, I think we're going to see a really messy next couple years as this stuff starts to sort itself out because oh, I think what's happening is, um, you know, the contract I saw was negotiated by a legit attorney and is, is you know, obviously uh, he considered that to be a favorable outcome for the athlete. A lot of these athletes are being taken advantage of. They don't know what they're signing. They're signing away exclusive rights to their image. And what we're probably going to see in the next two to three years is a lot of lawsuits and a lot of messy situations where the athlete wants to try to get out of what they signed. Or let's say this $8 million kid gets to college and turns out to be not very good, which is, you know, kind of a 50-50 crapshoot, even with the most highly rated recruits. Now that NIL collective is going to be trying to figure out how to get out of paying him that money. So everybody's figuring out the new rules of the game. It's happening on the fly in just rapid, rapid pace and... I don't think anybody really knows for, for, for sure what they're doing. And so it's a little early to say, for instance, oh, if, if this kid get $8 million, the next guy's going to get $9 million. We'll find out soon if that was an outlier or a sign of things to come. Stuart Mandel is editor-in-chief for college football at The Athletic.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine's president says he's willing to discuss neutrality in talks with Russia as negotiators from both sides arrive in Turkey for another round. It's Monday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Jack Lepiars in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the latest from Ukraine and the statement by its president, who says he would also want security guarantees in exchange for limited neutrality. Also this hour, the community bail funds who are working to get more people released from jail. By setting bail, magistrates are saying that person can be released if they have the funds. All we're doing is leveling the playing field. And how Russia's use of Belarus as a staging ground for its troops headed for Ukraine is prompting some pushback from Belarusians. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is not backing down in terms of comments he made about Russian leader Vladimir Putin, where he said Putin cannot remain in power. For the first time since making the remark in Warsaw, the president questioned extensively by reporters today. I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, just just brutality of half the children in Ukraine. I had just come from being with those families. And uh, and so, uh, but I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. Biden's comments were not in his scripted remarks. Rather, the president said they reflected his own moral outrage over Putin's attack against Ukraine. Meanwhile, the attacks on Ukraine continue. Thousands fleeing Mariupol as Russian artillery pounds the besieged city. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from a parking lot near the front line where convoys of evacuees are gathering. Convoys of people who are coming out of Mariupol have been arriving arriving here, they're telling harrowing stories of being interrogated by Russian troops, of being threatened with being killed. Uh, They're telling stories of being in basements for weeks on end with no electricity, no running water. And there's actually sort of this amazing sense of joy, people, there are tears of joy from people as they, they recount seeing the first Ukrainian flag, of making it even just to this parking lot. Um, people are not just 
happy to be out of Mariupol. They are overjoyed to be alive. NPR's Jason Bobian. New York's Attorney General's office says it's received only 10 documents from former President Donald Trump and its ongoing inquiry into the Trump Organization. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports. New York's Attorney General's office made the assertion in a court hearing in Manhattan on whether the Trump Organization and an independent monitor are supplying sufficient information quickly enough about the documents they're submitting. Assistant New York Attorney General Austin Thompson noted the former president's company has taken more than two years to respond to its initial subpoenas. Trump's lawyers say, quote, along the way, a lot has happened, including two criminal investigations into Trump's company. At the conclusion of the hearing, Judge Arthur Angeron ordered the Trump Organization and an independent monitor to provide detailed reports and turn over remaining documents and information by May. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. The Biden administration is moving ahead with a proposal that would impose a minimum 20 percent tax on a nation's wealthiest people. Administration's rationale for the taxes often such wealthy people do not pay as much tax as some middle class Americans effectively. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 94 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. It will still be at least a few days before the MBTA can begin safety inspections of the tunnels underneath the government center garage that partially collapsed on Saturday. The T's general manager says the agency has to wait for crews to remove the debris from the collapse and ensure the garage is stable before they'll send inspection crews into the tunnels. The collapse killed a construction worker and has forced parts of the orange and green line to shut down until the tunnels can be inspected. Shuttle buses are being used on the green line to get around the collapse site. Orange line customers are being encouraged to use those shuttles or the commuter rail. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is signaling the city will have some flexibility with its new outdoor dining rules for the North End. Earlier this month, the city announced North End restaurants would have to pay $7,500 to host outdoor dining this year. Today, the mayor told WBUR's Radio Boston, radiant restaurants do not need to pay the fee all at once. If for some reason they did not want to start on the first day of outdoor dining, but instead wait a month or two into the program and they only wanted to have a patio for a few months, that that should be charged month by month. Wu says there is also a process for hardship waivers. Several restaurant owners are considering suing the city over the fee. The mayor says the goal is to balance dining with quality of life concerns for North End residents. The price of gasoline in the state is down slightly again. The latest survey by AAA Northeast shows a drop of two cents a gallon since last week to an average of $4.24. That's still 62 cents higher than a month ago and nearly $1.50 higher than this time last year. Surface temperatures in the Gulf of Maine have hit a new record high. Researchers at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute say the ocean waters were more than 4 degrees Fahrenheit above the long-term average in 2021. Rising temperatures have affected fish survival and migration in the region. In sports, Celtics are at the Toronto Raptors tonight. The Red Sox and Bruins are both off. They will both be back tomorrow when the Bruins host the Toronto Maple Leafs. Red Sox tomorrow play the Pittsburgh Pirates in spring training. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a few snow showers. Lows dropping to the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 30s. And Wednesday, sunny again and warmer. Highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, Social Security, and estate planning. More at FisherInvestments.com. 
Clearly different money management, investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Ukraine is ready to discuss becoming a neutral country as part of a peace deal with Russia. That is what Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says. Negotiators from Ukraine and Russia arrived in Turkey today in hopes of reaching an agreement to put an end to Russia's war in Ukraine, a war that has killed at least 1,100 civilians and sent more than 10 million people fleeing their homes homes. NPR's Becky Sullivan is in Dnipro in central eastern Ukraine and has the latest for us. Hi, Becky. Hey there, Elsa. So where do these negotiations stand at the moment? Right. So as you said, this Zelensky proposal that Ukraine could adopt a neutral status, um, basically agree not to join NATO in order to get a peace deal, that, that's pretty big. Um, yeah. He says now that that would have to come with various security guarantees. And it's a little hard to know how, how a security guarantee, especially from the West, might differ substantively from NATO membership, but maybe it's an opening. And the negotiators meeting in Turkey tomorrow and Wednesday, they're still just representatives. It's not actually Zelensky himself who has repeatedly called for face-to-face negotiations with his counterpart, Russian President Vladimir Putin. But Russia says that that won't happen until negotiators can come to agreement on the biggest issues. So we'll see if that can happen. Okay. And in terms of fighting on the ground, what's the latest there? Mm-hmm. There are two big trends happening over the past week. The first is that Russia seems to be shifting focus, basically changing to more of a defensive posture, standing still instead of advancing around Kyiv, uh, and maybe looking to intensify their efforts in the south and especially in the eastern part of the country, which means places like Mariupol, the city on Ukraine's southeast coast, will probably see even more shelling in the weeks ahead. Uh, today, the mayor there said that 5,000 civilians have died there a number that we can't verify because it's really not safe to come anywhere near the city. Uh, And then the other element here is that Ukraine appears to be mounting some successful counteroffensives. Today I talked to Major Andriy Shulga. He's a spokesperson for the Dnipropetrovsk region, territorial defense. Here's what he had to say. What he's saying here is that successful counterattacks are taking place throughout the country, which which the Pentagon confirms. The biggest ones appear to be in the south near the city of Kherson, which was really the only major city that Russia has taken so far. Uh, and then they're also making moves in the northeast near the city of Sumy. And Ukraine also said today that they've retaken Irpin, which is a suburb northwest of Kiev that has seen some heavy shelling. Obviously, it's too soon to say that the tide is turning, but it it does sound like Ukraine's forces have been able to hold on. What does the outlook look like for Ukraine at this point in this war? Yeah, you know, I think it's changing from what a lot of analysts expected at the outset. Um, Part of that is that Russia really has mismanaged the war so so far, especially in the early days. Uh, Another factor is that just over the past eight years, Ukraine's military really has become a much more professional and experienced military and much more well-equipped thanks to years of being supplied weapons by the West. Um, And Ukrainian officials sound increasingly confident about a Ukrainian victory and everyday people too, frankly. One key could be the changing weather. Before the invasion, experts uh, widely viewed winter as key to Russia's goals, um, in part because Tanks and other heavy equipment move better on frozen ground, but it's late March now, and so the ground's no longer frozen, of course. And yesterday I talked to Ilko Bozhko. He is a regional military spokesperson here in the Dnipro area, and here's what he had to say. Right now, spring is coming, you know, it's still coming. It will be totally fulfilled with greenery. 
and it's really good for gorillas to start working with. Just one uh, Molotov cocktail can fire just one tank. Basically, he's saying as spring comes and the greenery here gets lush, the better that is for guerrilla warfare, which is the kind of fighting that Ukraine has been doing. Those guys with the stingers and the javelins, they can stand in the trees where they're much harder for the Russians to spot. Um, now, that said, spring does come late here. It snowed yesterday in Dnipro. Um, trees are only just starting to bud. So I followed up with him by asking, you know, it sounds like you're saying this might be long war. And he agreed, but he does think that Ukraine can hold on. Yeah. That is NPR's Becky Sullivan reporting from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much, Becky. You're welcome. Donations to community bail funds soared during the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd. The funds are used to bail out people awaiting trial when they can't raise the money themselves. An estimated $100 million poured in, and the funds are now getting a lot more people out of jail. But as NPR's Martin Costi reports, that's also causing concern among those who wish the bail funds took more care about whom they set free. When you're arrested in Philadelphia, your bail is set at the downtown courts building. The hearings are in a windowless room in the basement. We can't record audio in there, but picture the magistrate and the lawyers behind a glass partition, talking by video to the newly arrested prisoners over at the jail. It's assembly line work. It takes just four minutes to set one man's bail at $200,000. He protests, but they're on to the next one. A few blocks away, the Philadelphia Bail Fund is busy getting some of those same people released. Eli Plank is on a court website paying bail with the fund's credit card and then calling the defendant's families. How you doing? Um, I just wanted to let you know that I just posted the bail. Sometimes it's the family who asks the bail fund for help. We should still be good in terms of being able to have you pick her up before you have to go to work, I'm hoping. But the fund also scans court records every week looking for people to bail out. They're reaching a lot more people than they used to. In 2018, the fund got 69 people out of jail. Since 2020, it's bailed out 600 people and counting. One of those was Zahira Galarza. I was very in shock and surprised because I wasn't expecting to get bailed out, especially like within two days. I know my family didn't have the means. The cost of her freedom was $2,500. And when she met the terms of bail, that money was refunded, as happens with most of the people that the fund helps out. Malik Neal is a co-founder of the Philadelphia Bail Fund, and he says the aim here is to help defendants who wouldn't otherwise be able to come up with this cash. By setting bail, magistrates are saying that person can be released if they have the funds. So they're saying they can be released, and I think all we're doing is leveling the playing field. Neal says prosecutors have unfair leverage over people too poor to come up with bail because the prospect of waiting for trial behind bars coerces them into accepting plea deals. Especially now, you know, with the conditions in the jail, I think folks will just plead to get out. But some prosecutors argue that that leverage can also lead to some good outcomes. Take the case of Kwan Kim. You know, it gave me a chance to change my life. Kim recently graduated from a drug court in Seattle. He says the intensive program broke the cycle of his addiction. But the reason he signed up for it two and a half years ago was that he was stuck in jail and couldn't get bailed out. I wasn't interested in getting clean, honestly. You know, I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do to get out of jail at the time. There's just less of that kind of pressure now in cities where the bail funds have increased their reach. I happened to get an email 
by the way, just wanted to let you know this person was suddenly released from jail because of a community bail fund. Angie Gerald is a volunteer who works on public safety in Seattle. She recalls how a few weeks ago she found out about the release of a drug-addicted woman who'd been plaguing her neighborhood with violent outbursts, including assault. Gerald says the local bail fund does not seem to have considered the consequences of setting this person free again. Something like a community bail fund that's taking actions without being in any contact with anyone in an actual neighborhood community who lives with this person just felt very jarring, very disjointed. For us to go in and say, well, you get to stay in jail or you don't because another community member says they should, that's not how bail works. Chanel Rimes is Director of Advocacy for the Northwest Community Bail Fund in Seattle. Like most of the funds, it's agnostic about a defendant's criminal history. She says it's not their job to decide who deserves bail, and she wonders why anyone would expect it to be. Do these people that are concerned in the community go out to the bail bond agencies that actually make a profit and ask them about how do they decide who gets a bond or not? But even as the bail funds contend with this kind of pushback, they're also running into some practical limits on how many people they can set free. That tidal wave of new money from 2020? Most of that has now been used. Normally, the way this works is as people show up for court dates, their bail money is recycled back into the bail funds to help out the next person. But that's not happening so much right now. We are still in a pandemic. Tierra Rainey runs the Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund, and she says COVID-related court delays mean that most of the people that they've bailed out are still waiting for their court dates. So the bulk of the money is still tied up in the system right now, which means we're having to restrict and think about our budgets every month in a way that we didn't have to the last couple of years. There's also a sense that the rapid growth of the past couple of years has created a crisis of mission. Jocelyn Simonson is a professor at Brooklyn Law who studies bail funds. One worry of bail funds when they get so much money is that they will become part of the system. Simonson says bail funds around the country are having, as she puts it, a live debate right now about whether to keep releasing as many people as possible or whether to redirect some of the money to support services for people who are released from jail or to more staffers who could lobby for lasting changes. State by state, we are having battles and questions over bail, over policing, over criminalization that we have never had before. And Simonson says much of this debate has been pushed forward by the funds and the simple but disruptive act of bailing strangers out of jail. Martin Costi, NPR News. Food banks have been working overtime to feed people during this pandemic. And every few months, it feels like there's a fresh combination of factors to navigate. Right now, it's gas prices, inflation, and jams in the supply chain. We are not only paying over what we normally pay because of freight, but now we're not even able to get those items because of supply and chain issues. Tomorrow afternoon, we hear how these challenges are affecting one organization in Las Vegas. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, how Russia's using Belarus as a staging ground for troops headed to Ukraine and the backlash that has caused. That's coming up here 
on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360 approach combines active investing with actionable insights and resources. MFS.com slash Active360. In business news, the owners of the iconic Kowloon restaurant on Route 1 in Saugus are offering new details about the restaurant and the site's future. One of the owners tells the Boston Business Journal the restaurant will be downsized to a 350-person capacity from its current 1,200 to make space for condos. He says it may even include a drive through to better serve an increasing number of customers who want takeout. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. The Dow was up 94 points at 34,955. NASDAQ rose 185 points to 14,354. And the S&P 500 gained 32 points to end the day at 4,575. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan. A wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com network. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a snow shower with temperatures down in the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the upper 30s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Kelsey Snell. Russian troops are currently using Belarus as a staging ground to invade Ukraine from the north. But for Belarusians, who are almost all against the war, this is just the latest test of their freedom. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin recently met with two activists with a lot to say about digital rights, Belarus's place in the world, and the way forward. At a Washington, D.C. coffee shop that turns into a bar at night, two out-of-towners sit drinking IPAs. It's been a long day of meetings with Washington types. Hey, how's it going? All good, all good. How are you? The two men are Belarusian activists. They don't seem out of place here. It's exposed brick, dimly lit, the kind of spot diplomats and spies like to hang out, not too far from the embassies. It feels far away from the war in Ukraine, though Ukraine is on everyone's mind. Hello, my name is Anton Matolka. I'm from Belarus. I work with Serge with ISANS. My name is Sergei Heritono. I'm from Belarus, and I'm a media expert at ISANS. Heritono and Matolka both work with an international firm called ISANS. It focuses on hybrid threats against democracy across Europe. Hertano now lives in New York, and Matolka, a blogger, fled Minsk in 2020. The global focus has understandably been on Putin's bloody invasion of Ukraine. But Belarus is also occupied by Russian troops. 
And only a tiny percentage of people there support the war, despite the regime's ties to the Kremlin. According to uh, recent Chatham House uh, polling, only 3% of the population support the participation of Belarusian troops in this war against Ukraine. Belarusians in particular know what it feels like to be shut off from the Internet, a reality many Russians now confront. Tech companies are withdrawing en masse from Moscow. The Kremlin is also shutting off access to social media and independent news sites. In 2020, government of Alexander Lukashenko almost entirely blocked access to the Internet. That pushed Belarusians to become more adept at technology. Massive numbers signed up for a VPN, or a virtual private network, allowing them to make it look like they were connecting from somewhere else. It was really surprising that almost half of the population had VPN installed in 48 hours because people were eager to know what's going on. Some internet providers and VPN companies have pulled out of Russia. The fear is it could do more harm than good because Russians might not be able to access independent information. As the war grinds on after nearly a month, it remains dangerous to be a digital activist in Belarus. An anonymous collective of hackers who call themselves the cyber partisans have exposed information about Belarusian security services and tried to hack into the railways to prevent Russian troops from traveling. They showed the power of uh, pro-democratic hackers and they showed how people from high-tech sector and hackers can be used for the good cause. For many Belarusians, they see themselves as more European, Hertano and Matolka explained. Hertano grew up in the border town of Grodno. While many places in Belarus have been scarred by conflict, old churches and palaces still stand there. It has this uh, vibe of history that not so many places share because Belarus has been a place of wars for Europe and Russia. Belarus was the first place people saw when they entered the Soviet Union, they explained, and the last thing Soviets saw when they were leaving. Matolka said places like Belarus and Ukraine have always feared Russian aggression. You know, Belarusians and Russians have two different visions of the world. In Russia, people usually say, we can do it again. Like, we, we are won in Second World War, so we can do it again. And Belarus and Ukraine, they say it never again, because they understand how, what's the price of this war. In other words, a Kremlin that even today still sees Belarus and Ukraine as under its thumb. But the two activists remain defiant. Yes, we have a lot of problems with the business, with the rules or something else, but people can do anything here. It's like a phoenix. Like a phoenix, Anton Matalka says, rising from the ashes. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. And now the story of, let's just call it, an unusual collection. NPR's Fernando Alfonso explains. In the age of Marie Kondo, ruthlessly editing one's possessions, the idea of collecting things has become quaint. But that hasn't stopped Charlotte Ruschhoft, who lives in North Germany near the Baltic Sea. She's the owner of a unique and perplexing collection, hundreds of small, tiny, purplish balls that are found in fountain pens, ink cartridges, kept stuffed in an Ikea desk. So nowadays, I'd say um, that the most recent 
feeling that I have been feeling about this is like a lot of nostalgia because I remember like how young and how eager I was when I started this. The now 24-year-old Rushhoff started collecting the balls 10 years ago. And it's like just a little constant thing where I sit down and I do this one thing and I, I get carried away in it, but I don't get distracted. And that's kind of comforting, I guess. The collection is even more unique because these balls aren't meant to be saved or collected. We have people that collect fountain pens and collect ink, but I have not seen the little balls inside of ink cartridges. That's very interesting. That's Chris Henline. He owns a South Carolina shop that sells fountain pens. Now, at this point, you may be asking the question that a lot of social media users asked after Ruschhoff posted a picture of her collection on Reddit. Why do this? But the uniqueness is exactly what draws her to it. I was already kind of weird, so I, mean, I, I just leaned into it. Ruschhoff isn't alone in her attachment to unique collectibles. Christian Braun is the founder of HobbyDB, a hobbyist web community with a half a million members. I've met folks that collect sands from different beaches, lint, rubber bands, and all kinds of other stuff that's not standard. And the most important thing about the sand, rubber bands, and yes, even tiny purplish balls from fountain pen cartridges, it seems for the collectors at least, they do spark joy, which is the standard Marie Kondo applies to what to keep. Fernando Alfonso, NPR News. More than 30,000 Russians who have fled their government since Russia invaded Ukraine have headed to the country of Georgia. Like 23-year-old Natasya Duvitskaya, who left Moscow over a week ago, but had to leave her dad behind. We talked a lot, and I've seen him crying for the first time in my life because he was so worried, and he said that there is no future in Russia. Just run and find something new. They follow other Russians who ended up there following Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. So when might they feel safe enough to go home? Tune into the next episode of NPR's podcast, Consider This. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy NPR.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, the slap seen round the world at last night's Oscars and how Hollywood failed to respond. Also, asking whether candidates are obligated to tell the truth in political ads. That's coming up in the forecast. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of snow showers, lows dropping a few degrees to the low 20s. Right now, 30 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was born in Ukraine and testified in the first impeachment hearing against Donald Trump. Colonel Larry Wilkerson served as Colin Powell's chief of staff during the Iraq War. The two men have unique histories that have brought them to two very different views on what the U.S. and Europe must do now regarding Russia's attack on Ukraine. We'll hear them both. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is unveiling the details of a new budget proposal. The nearly $6 trillion plan would raise taxes on billionaires and corporations, increase military spending, and pump more money into domestic programs. Biden says the proposal would make prudent investments in economic growth while reducing the nation's deficit. And here's how we're achieving this record deficit reduction. First, we're growing the economy. We've created a record 6.7 million jobs since I took office, and we've generated a GDP growth of 5.7 percent, the best economic growth we've seen in this country in over 40 years. The budget also includes billions of dollars to crack down on gun trafficking, police reform, and efforts to protect voting rights. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is deciding whether to call the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas for questioning. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the committee's chairman is recommending that Ginny Thomas be asked to appear before the panel voluntarily. The plans come on the same day the committee is set to vote on criminal contempt referrals for two Trump White House officials, former trade advisor Peter Navarro and former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino. After the public meeting, the select committee is expected to hold a private meeting to discuss Ginny Thomas. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson will recommend they ask Thomas to cooperate with their investigation. Last week, it was revealed that Ginny Thompson sent 29 text messages after the 2020 presidential election to a top Trump aide pushing to overturn the results. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 94 points, the Nasdaq up 185. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. There is no timeline for when MBTA officials will allow inspectors into the subway tunnels beneath the government center parking garage that partially collapsed over the weekend. The collapse killed Peter Monsini, a member of the demolition crew. As WBUR's Dave Faniff reports, safety inspections are required before the T will resume orange and green line service in that area. Before any inspectors can get into the tunnels, debris must be removed from the garage that partially collapsed, and the building's stability must be ensured. T General Manager Steve Poftak says only then will experts be allowed to check the tunnels. That will be a combination, obviously, of visual inspection, measurement, and to the extent that we need to use other technologies, we will. We'll be using not only our own internal inspectors, but we are bringing in outside consultants as well. Poptac says inspectors will have detailed tunnel measurements so they'll be able to tell if there has been any movement inside of them. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. There are indications the Massachusetts State Senate may take up a sports betting bill sometime before the end of the legislative session in July. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. The House has already approved a bill to legalize sports betting, while Senate leadership has been more reticent to tackle the issue. After a recent Statehouse News Service poll showed 60% of senators support the concept of sports betting, Senate President Karen Spilka said the members are working toward agreement before bringing a bill to the floor. The devil's in the details, uh, and uh, I believe that many of the details we're trying to see if we could have a consensus and debate, certainly a lot of it on the floor, but to try to have consensus. Governor Baker says he supports allowing sports wagering as neighboring states, including Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and New York, do so now. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A probate and family court judge whose state officials suspended last week has resigned his position on the bench. The state Supreme Court suspended Judge Paul Susek without pay after a state commission concluded that he engaged in intentional, non-consensual, and unwelcome touching of a court employee at a conference. Sussex submitted his resignation to the governor effective today. Previously, the judge denied any intentional physical contact with the colleague. The city of Newton is joining the MBTA's Youth Pass program. The program offers discounted T-passes to people between the ages of 18 and 25 with low incomes. Eligible residents must either receive state or federal benefits like SNAP, be part of a job training program, or be part of a high school equivalent degree program. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, celebrating Independent Bookstore Day in Boston and Cambridge on April 30th. Scavenger Hunt, Silent Reading Party, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a snow shower with lows down in the low 20s. Right now, 29 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, protecting small businesses with specialized coverages for commercial vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. It's been called the slap that was seen around the world. At last night's Academy Awards ceremony, Will Smith took a swing at presenter Chris Rock after the comedian cracked an unflattering joke about his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. A few minutes later, Smith won the Oscar for Best Actor and seemed to reference the moment. Art imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said. But love will make you do crazy things. The incident affected the tenor and the rest of the show afterwards and is still sparking a lot of discussion among viewers and fans. The Academy has launched a formal review of the incident. Here to discuss it with us is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, who watched the telecast and wrote a column about Hollywood's reaction for NPR.org. Hi, Eric. Hi. So first of all, for those people who didn't see this or didn't see it replayed a thousand times, can you tell us a little bit more detail about what exactly happened here? Yeah, this was all over social media, clogging everybody's Twitter feed, I think. Uh, Chris Rock was announcing the nominees for Best Documentary Film, and he was cracking jokes about the celebrity couples that were in front of the stage. And he looked down at Jada Pinkett Smith, who has a close-cropped hair, and he said this. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it, all right? And now that crack kind of drew groans and some laughs, and even Will Smith seemed to laugh at first, but then Smith walked on stage and slapped Rock across the face, went back to his seat, and started shouting profanities at Chris Rock. 
uh, before the comic went back to introducing the nominees. Now, it's worth noting that Rock also cracked a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith when he was hosting the 2016 Oscars that was pretty tough. And it's also worth noting that she suffers from alopecia, which may have made the Smiths kind of sensitive last night about jokes on her short hair. Yeah, and that's a lot of background that maybe people who were watching it in the moment didn't necessarily know. And you wrote a column for NPR.org headline, Why Did Hollywood Applaud Will Smith After He Slapped Chris Rock? So what is your answer to that question? What do you think it says about Hollywood right now? Well, to be sure, some of it seemed to be shock. People just were processing what they had seen, especially from Will Smith, who has always seemed to handle touchy situations with humor and charm. But some of this felt like Hollywood was celebrating a superstar who had committed an act of violence right in front of them on live television. I mean, I was surprised that producers of the Oscars even allowed Smith on stage to give a speech. I mean, at a time when there's been a lot of effort made to hold powerful but abusive people in Hollywood accountable through the Me Too movement and other actions. It just seemed kind of hypocritical to allow somebody who attacks somebody physically to then accept one of show business's highest honors and then give a speech where he apologized to the Oscar Academy and he apologized to his fellow nominees, but not to the person that he struck. Right. And, you know, some fans online have criticized Chris Rock, saying that black women face a lot of expectations over their hair and that he shouldn't have told the joke in the first place. Absolutely. I think they make a great point. And Chris Rock even produced a documentary about this stuff in 2009 called Good Hair. But the bottom line is that the crassest jokes in the world don't justify a violent response. I mean, I remember covering award shows years and years ago where musical artists had conflicts and there were fear that people would be assaulted on stage or they might be assaulted backstage. And this is just not the kind of fear that one of the nation's most accomplished actors should be bringing to the Academy Awards. Do you think there will be any repercussions for anyone involved from Will Smith for the Oscars or for Chris Rock? Sadly, I think Hollywood indicated last night it just wants to move on. I mean, Rock hasn't said anything publicly. Police say he's probably not going to file charges. The biggest damage here may be to Will Smith's reputation. He's an actor known for his popularity and work ethic, but he never seemed to get as much credit for the creative quality of his acting. And here was a chance to celebrate him for finally winning what seemed like a career achievement Oscar. And instead, he ensured that people will mostly remember how he slapped another man on stage. I don't think he's going to face any real punishment. They're not going to take away his Oscar or anything. But that asterisk on his win, that may be the worst punishment of all. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. It is an election year, and around the country, Americans are about to be inundated with political ads. Those ads can make some outlandish claims. NPR's Domenico Montanaro takes a look at the hard truth in political advertising. Former President Donald Trump has endorsed dozens of candidates in this election cycle, and there's one thing many of these candidates have in common. They back Trump's lie that he really won the 2020 presidential election. If you're watching this ad right now, it means you're in the middle of watching a fake news program. You know how to know it's fake? Because they won't even cover the biggest story out there, the rigged election of 2020. That's Carrie Lake, a Republican running for governor of Arizona. She has Trump's backing, and he's made very clear why. Carrie Lake, I'll tell you, she is incredible. She's been with us from the beginning on the election fraud and everything else, and she's going to be your 
next governor and court case after court case and multiple audits have proved that there was no widespread fraud in 2020 that includes in arizona a state biden won by about 10,000 votes but that hasn't stopped candidates like lake from lying about it her campaign didn't respond to a request for comment ads like this help raise her profile and curry favor with the trump base but it raises the question can a political candidate just lie in an ad unfortunately you're allowed to lie Tom Wheeler was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under former President Barack Obama. The government stepping in and saying this is good speech, this is bad speech, is something that the government has tried to avoid. The federal government does regulate truth in advertising, but that only applies to commercial ads, not political ones. In fact, local broadcast channels, think your local NBC, CBS, or ABC news stations, are required to air candidates' ads unfiltered, like this, from the Pennsylvania Senate race. I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message. First, China sent us COVID. Then, David McCormick's hedge fund gave Chinese companies Billions. While the we government has essentially thrown up its hands when it comes to regulating truth in political ads, local broadcast channels can reject ads from outside groups. They often do the dirty work for campaigns, airing lots of negative ads. Here's one from Priorities USA, which supports Democratic candidates tying former President Trump and Republicans to the January 6th insurrection. Last time was just a test run. Donald Trump is putting people in place now to dictate the outcome of the next presidential election. In Cable channels and social media platforms have wider latitude. CNN, for example, declined to air some Trump ads during the 2020 election because they contained falsehoods. Some believe not enough is being done and have called for a neutral government regulator, but that would likely meet a stiff challenge, the FCC's Wheeler. There's a First Amendment hurdle that has to be crossed, and that has traditionally proven um, pretty high. Various courts have upheld that candidates can say what they want based on the First Amendment. In light of that, Wheeler says there at least needs to be more transparency about who's paying for many of these ads. You know, a commercial for cornflakes that says it's Kellogg's, you know that, right? The problem is that a political ad that is sponsored by Americans for puppies and the flag, you've got no idea who that is. Wheeler was getting ready to make a push to require stricter disclosure when he was FCC chairman, but he decided to wait until after the 2016 election. Trump won and his FCC had no interest in pursuing that. And now with some $9 billion expected to be spent on political advertising this cycle, there's no filter for truth and voters will largely be in the dark about who's paying for many of these ads. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, and I approve this story. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When times are stressful, it can help to think about the people who've helped us in moments of need. Today, we kick off a new series from the team at Hidden Brain. It's called My Unsung Hero. Each week, we'll bring you stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on another person. We begin today with Mary Amato. Mary encountered her unsung hero shortly after a difficult pregnancy and the birth of her second child. Mary's choice to become a stay-at-home mom was starting to weigh on her. My husband, a science writer, had just won an award for his writing from a chemistry association, and we were flown from D.C. to California for the big award banquet. It was really exciting, but I was also a mess. I was having an identity crisis. I had quit my job when our first child was born because 
I felt that raising kids was important work and I wanted to do that work. But people would say, you stopped working? (laughs) I had been working harder than I had ever worked and not getting a single paycheck or recognition from my social network. And the host took the mic and introduced my husband, listing all of his accomplishments. And then after this long list, the host gestured to me, a homemaker and mother of two. This was the first time I ever heard myself defined by those words. The place was full of scientists, mostly men, but there were a handful of women. And I remember feeling a sense of shame. And I thought they must either see me as clueless or as a traitor to the cause. After the speech and the banquet was over, I sat at the big round table alone, feeling way too self-conscious to mingle, staring at my dessert plate. And then one of those older female scientists walked up to me. She looked me straight in the eye and she said, I just want you to know, I'm sorry. She said, I just want you to know that what you're doing is so valuable. And she moved on before I had a chance to thank her. She had given me exactly what I needed in that time. Now, when I see a woman or a man during the middle of a workday pushing a stroller, I will often stop and say, What you are doing is so valuable. Thank you. Mary Amato of New York. Mary is now a children's book author and educator. You can share the story of your unsung hero. Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up on All Things Considered, the half-a-million-dollar bill one man received for taking an air ambulance back to his family home in North Carolina for cancer treatment. Also, the Eritrean cyclist who has become the first black African to win one of road cycling's classic races in Europe. Both those stories and more coming up here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of snow showers. Lows dropping to the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs should be in the upper 30s. And Wednesday, mostly sunny again and warmer. Highs will be in the upper 40s. Right now, 29 degrees in Boston at 549.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Symphony Orchestra with maestro James Burton in a free concert at Symphony Hall April 5th. Tickets at bu.edu slash CFA. Do you have little ones in your life? Great news! The mega-awesome, super-huge, wicked-fun podcast Playdate is returning to WBUR City Space April 23rd and 24th. Join me, Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's storytelling podcast, Circle Round, and some of our other favorite kids' podcasts for live performances, music, and activities. Tickets and more information at wbur.org slash circle round. See you there! From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Who decides whether something is medically necessary or not? That question's at the heart of our medical bill of the month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is the editor-in-chief of our partner Kaiser Health News, and she's here to tell us about it. Dr. Rosenthal, welcome back. Thanks, Ari. Good to be here. Who do you want to introduce us to today? Today we meet Sean and Rebecca Dines. They're a young couple who live in western North Carolina. Okay, reporter Stephanie O'Neill caught up with Sean Dines. And let's listen to what happened to him, and then we'll come back and discuss his bill. When the pandemic caused Sean Dines to lose his job as a bartender and graphic artist in his native North Carolina, he and his wife headed west to stay for a bit with Sean's grandfather on his Wyoming homestead. I was doing a lot of fishing, camping, trying to enjoy as much of life as we could. But then something totally unexpected happened to 32-year-old Sean. Around the middle of October, I began to experience some serious leg swelling in actually both legs, which was quite unusual. The swelling continued and over a few weeks became painful. Fatigue set in. Sean's wife, Rebecca, urged him to get blood tests at a local urgent care. And within 24 hours of doing so, Sean got a call that turned his life upside down. The lady on the other end, she said, get yourself to an emergency room, you know, as fast as you can. Your white blood cell count is extremely high. The couple drove more than three hours to a regional hospital in Casper, Wyoming. Doctors there ran tests that prompted them to transfer Sean to a large Denver hospital. His diagnosis, a fast-growing blood cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is what happens is the immature white blood cells um, basically start to clog uh, the body in a sense, and it almost chokes the body out. The needed treatment would require Sean remain hospitalized for nearly a month at the end of 2020. But Sean had no family in Denver. His parents lived just 30 minutes from Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, but he'd need medical care during the 1,400-mile trip home. Then the next step would be, how do we get back to Duke? His mom found an Arizona-based air ambulance company called Angel Med Flight. The company said it would figure out payment with Sean's insurer and that they could take him almost immediately. A relieved Sean flew to Duke and underwent 26 days of intense inpatient cancer treatments. The bill for the ground and air ambulances added up to almost a half million dollars. In March 2021, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina sent Sean a big chunk of that total, a check for $72,000 in his name. What we proceeded to do was forward that check to Angel Med Flight. And that was basically what we thought was the end of that whole payment issue. But just weeks later, in June, Blue Cross demanded Sean pay back all the money, which he no longer had. We were speechless when we received a, a, a refund request for $72,000. That's a, a, you know, a, a nice Tesla or take your pick, any nice sports car. So then began the quest to figure out what happened. Why had the insurer paid the claim, then months later demand its return? 
but nobody could ever really give us any answers. And I, I'll be honest, I still don't really know why the initial payment was ever made if they had uh, reservations about, you know, paying for it. Sean Dines, whose leukemia is now in remission, says this past September, Blue Cross threatened to send him to collections. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill. Wow, Dr. Rosenthal, there is so much to unpack here. His insurer was sending him to collections because he didn't pay back $72,000 that he had already given to the air ambulance company that they had sent him a check for. Explain what was happening here. It's hard to explain, isn't it? That was the totally surreal situation Sean was in when he wrote to us at Bill of the Month. And what's the situation now? Well, we started making calls, and the good news, as so often happens, is that the dispute between the two parties that Sean was in the middle of was resolved. They both backed off. The insurer and the ambulance. Yes, that's right. The insurer now says it will not send Sean to collections and has stopped seeking the $72,000 back. I was also struck by that initial figure, half a million dollars for ambulances alone. How did they get from that figure to this $72,000 payment? The air ambulance company wasn't in Sean's insurance network. And yes, those initial charges were just outlandish. There's no basis in reality. We were told by the insurer that the $72,000 was just for the ground ambulance between the hospitals and the airports. Why did the insurance company change its mind and say, we shouldn't have paid this, you owe us $72,000 all of a sudden? Well, this crazy case revolves around the question of medical necessity and who gets to make that call. The insurance company reviewed the case and said there was no medical necessity for Sean to leave the hospital in Denver. So it didn't matter that Sean had no family in Denver, that he didn't live in Denver, that he would need to spend a month getting treated? It mattered to Sean, of course, but it didn't to the insurance company. What about this new law that's supposed to protect people from surprise bills, including air ambulance bills? That's right. There is this No Surprises Act that started up this year on January 1st. But Sean's case underlines some weak spots in that protection. First of all, the insurance companies can say a trip or a procedure was not medically necessary. And also the law doesn't somehow cover ground ambulances, which is kind of crazy. Ground ambulances are often out of network and they're way, way high. Are there other things that people should watch out for? Sure, there are a bunch of loopholes. In non-emergency cases, the new law requires out-of-network providers give patients a good faith estimate of their charges. Well, if their estimate is $489,000, is that really a choice? I don't think so. Well, I'm happy to hear that Sean is doing better and that this billing nightmare is over for him. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you for telling us about it. I'm glad we could help him, and thank you. And if you have an outrageous or confusing medical bill, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us about it. A typical spring Sunday in Belgium means bike racing through narrow, cobbled streets and steep hills. But yesterday's race from Ghent to Wevelgem produced an atypical winner. Binyam Girmay makes history! Binyam Girmay of Eritrea, yesterday, just before his 22nd birthday, he became the first black African to win one of Belgium's classic races. He survived the cobbles and hills, made the winning breakaway, and after 154 miles, he sprinted across the line first. It's uh, amazing. You know, I didn't accept to, to race like this and then in the end to win. 
it's, I don't know, still I'm surprised, you know. <laughs> now, most of the world's most prestigious bike races are in Europe, and cycling remains a largely white sport. Though Eritrea has produced several professionals already. After it became independent, um, cycling became a very prominent sport, even bigger than football and athletics, maybe. There's races there every week. Cycling journalist Jose Bain profiled Germay earlier this year. She said he packs a powerful sprint, and she's impressed by his confidence on the bike. A fantastic rider who, for his age, has an amazing insight in the tactics of racing. Germay now heads home to Eritrea to see his family after three months in Europe. But he'll be training for the three-week tour of Italy, and in a few years, cycling's first-ever world championship in Africa, in Rwanda in 2025. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, how a crackdown on people crossing the border illegally in Texas has played out over the past year. That story and more coming up next hour here on WBUR. Forecast says clouds tonight could see a snow shower. Lows down in the low 20s right now, 29 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm investigative reporter Shannon Dooling, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A federal judge writes that former President Donald Trump likely broke the law in his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's Monday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the judge's ruling in a civil case brought by the House January 6th committee, which is expected to hear from Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, on Thursday. Also this hour, Florida's governor signs a controversial bill into law restricting teaching about sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. We will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, the debate around a gas tax holiday. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. New details are emerging from the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol. The mayor says a Russian blockade and barrage has killed 
5,000 civilians, including 200 children. From western Ukraine, Yulian Haida reports nobody was evacuated from the city today. In an emotional appeal on Ukrainian television, Mariupol's mayor Vadim Boychenko said that the Russian siege on his city amounted to genocide and warned that other cities like Chernihiv in the north may soon follow suit. Boychenko says he's heard from families who ran through gunfire and shelling to reach Russian checkpoints begging to be let out, but to no avail. The mayor reports that one in ten buildings remain intact in the city with a population about the size of Cleveland. The increased danger prevented Ukraine's government from attempting evacuations from Mariupol today, even though about 100,000 people are still expected to be inside. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. Ukrainian forces are claiming they've retaken a Kiev suburb in an eastern town from Russian forces. It was becoming a back-and-forth stalemate on the ground. It comes ahead of the first high-level talks between representatives of the two countries in some time. Rev. Erpin says the area has been liberated from Russian troops. It's also believed Ukrainian forces have retaken another area. Intelligence officials say it is increasingly appears that Russia is focusing its efforts on the Donbass region, predominantly Russian-speaking part of eastern Ukraine. UN Secretary-General is calling for humanitarian truce in Ukraine and is tapping a top official to try to mediate that. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says since Russia invaded Ukraine, the war has uprooted 10 million people, led to the, quote, senseless loss of lives, as well as skyrocketing food and energy prices worldwide. He's asked the UN's humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, to talk to Russia and Ukraine about this. But let's be clear, the solution to this humanitarian tragedy is not humanitarian, it is political. The UN Secretary General is hoping that a humanitarian ceasefire will allow UN workers to aid Ukrainians and give Russia and Ukraine room to negotiate an end to the war. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Giant energy cartel OPEC is expected to stick fairly close to its plans for only a modest increase in oil output in May. That's according to several sources close to the current discussions. It comes even as oil prices have been extremely volatile, surging one day and falling the next in part due to the ongoing ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Several oil-consuming nations have called on the cartel to raise output in an effort to bring down prices at the gas pump. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow's up 94 points. The Nasdaq rose 185 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Dozens of North End restaurateurs are threatening to take legal action against the city of Boston. The city announced this month restaurants there would have to pay significant fees to offer outdoor dining. Mayor Michelle Wu says the fees will help mitigate community impacts, but today Wu tells WBUR she wants to clarify those fees. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtel has more. Mayor Wu told Radio Boston the restaurants could pay the $7,500 fee in installments rather than one lump sum. In addition, the restaurants would have to pay hundreds of dollars for each parking spot they use. The mayor also says businesses that can't afford the program can apply for a hardship waiver. So um, addressing some of the factors that restaurant owners have lifted up around the difference between if, if you don't have a liquor license, for example. It's unclear whether these options were part of the city's original plan for the neighborhood's outdoor dining fees or if they're adjustments made in response to pushback from the community. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Meantime, Mayor Wu is vowing the city will review the results of a federal safety investigation that's underway into Saturday's partial collapse of the government center parking garage. The collapse killed Peter Monsini, a member of the crew demolishing the garage. In a statement today, relatives say the 51-year-old was someone who was full of life, passionate, and thoughtful. The statement goes on to thank first responders who went to his aid and well-wishers. Mayor Wu also says the city will review existing workplace safety ordinances to make sure they're being fully enforced because of the collapse above two subway tunnels. Service on the green and orange lines in the area has been suspended until further notice. Some Massachusetts prisons fell short in handling the coronavirus pandemic and neglected prisoners who are disabled or medically vulnerable. That's according to a report issued today by the Disability Law Center. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The report examined coronavirus mitigation efforts within specialized medical units at state prisons in Norfolk and Shirley. It found the Department of Correction did not adequately protect prisoners with disabilities in those two prisons from a resurgence of the virus. Tatum Pritchard is interim executive director of the Disability Law Center. We hope that releasing this report increases the public understanding and also encourages the Department of Correction to do better. In response to the investigation, the Department of Correction said it did not support the findings and it followed public health guidelines during the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. In sports, Celtics are at the Toronto Raptors tonight. Red Sox and Bruins are both off and both back tomorrow. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of snow showers, lows dropping to the low 20s, mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 30s. Right now, 28 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. The Democratic-led Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has obtained text messages sent from a conservative activist to a Trump aide. Those messages called for overturning the 2020 presidential election and promoted debunked conspiracy theories. But this was no ordinary activist sending the text. This was Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Tonight, Benny Thompson, the chairman of the committee, is expected to recommend seeking her cooperation in its investigation. NPR congressional reporter Claudia Gersales has been closely following this investigation, mm-hmm. and she joins me now. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Kelsey. So it's already been a very busy day for the January 6th committee. So let's start with Ginny Thomas. What's the committee expected to do now? The panel is expected to meet tonight privately to discuss their next steps after it was revealed that Ginny Thomas had been texting former President Trump's chief of staff, this is Mark Meadows, after the 2020 election to push efforts to overturn the results. And as you mentioned, we've learned that the committee's chairman, Benny Thompson, will be recommending to the committee that they should pursue her cooperation. Now, the panel is already meeting this evening in a public meeting to take up criminal contempt referrals against two former Trump officials who have not cooperated with committee subpoenas. This is former trade advisor Peter Navarro and former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino. They've both been defiant about these votes. That said, after this public portion of the meeting, the panel is expected to meet in private soon after to discuss Ginny Thomas and how she could be asked and if it's voluntary or by subpoena. 
So this is pretty uncharted territory, right? Could seeking her cooperation here be problematic? Yes, this is extraordinary for Congress to seek testimony from the spouse of a sitting Supreme Court justice. So it's not completely clear exactly what the next steps are for the panel in terms of how Thomas responds as she and Justice Thomas have so far declined to comment publicly on all this. And there was a ruling today in another part of the committee's investigation. A federal judge ordered that more than 100 emails from attorney John Eastman about getting the election overturned be given to the committee. So what was the significance of this decision? This is a pretty big victory for the panel. They had made these bombshell claims in this case that former President Trump likely committed crimes in an effort to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress to certify President Joe Biden's win January 6th of last year. They made these claims because Eastman, who had been working with Trump's team and shared memos on how to overturn those results, he was trying to block the committee from obtaining some of his past emails. And so this ruling is significant because not only did the judge rule in the committee's favor to order these emails to be turned over, but they agree there was evidence of illegal activity on the president's part in connection with January 6th. In the, yes, so it's a lot. And the committee has already toyed with this idea that it could issue a criminal referral against Trump. And it also ramps up the pressure on the Justice Department to look into these specific claims. It has been a busy day, but we've learned the committee could speak with Trump's son-in-law, the former White House senior advisor, Jared Kushner. Is that this week as well? That could be this week as well, yes. So it's a lot going on. Uh, We've confirmed this is an ABC report that came up earlier today, and we have learned from sources that the panel has Kushner down to appear before the committee on Thursday. Of course, this could change, but it's one of the more high-profile witnesses they could see. We should note already the committee in January asked Ivanka Trump, this is Kushner's wife, and also a former senior White House advisor to appear before the panel. And for months now, the panel's chairman has said that they remained engaged in talks, but nothing had come to fruition yet. They had also asked Chairman Thompson at the time if Jared Kushner was of interest. And while he waved it off then, He and other members have long maintained that they are willing to talk to whoever is willing to come before them to talk about January 6th. There's a lot going on with this committee. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. All right, to Lviv now, a city in western Ukraine that has been peaceful for much of the war. But over the weekend, Russian missiles rattled Lviv residents when they struck military targets there. Lviv is home to Ivanka Honak. She worked as a tour guide in her beloved home city for 15 years. Honak says she knows the story behind practically every stone and every wall of the city and has written guidebooks about Lviv. We spoke to her just a couple days before she and her three children boarded the first train evacuating people out of Lviv. They are in southern Germany now, which is where Ivanka Honak joins us today. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being with us again. Where exactly in southern Germany are you right now? I understand that you and your kids are in a hotel? Uh, yes, we are in a beautiful luxury hotel. We were welcomed here by the owner in a small resort city surrounded with mountains and by the lake. How has it been adjusting to life in Germany for you and your kids? Well, we had relatives here in Munich. It's around one hour drive oh. from uh, this town. Uh, first couple of days, they provided us the shelter, but then they welcomed another family and we had to find new place. Yeah. 
May I ask, what, what is it like to leave a city that you are so connected to behind? I mean, you made it your job to show people every day what is beautiful about Lviv. What is it like to walk away from your home city? It's absolute tragedy, absolute tragedy. Um, it's like all my life I was investing in, in the city. And uh, I was uh, deeply, I'm still, I am connected to my city no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I'm planning to go back. My children, they still cry about Lviv. Even the youngest, she's three years old. And she, uh, I think I hear she her. She says, I want, yeah, actually. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's okay if you need to take um, a moment. That's okay. Um, She says, Mom, when we're back to my kindergarten with my favorite teacher, with my favorite children, and when those uh, enemies are going back to their country, she's three and she already understands so many things. We all want home. Well, at the moment, what are your plans for the near future, for you and your kids? Uh, there's two sides of the coin. My kids are very happy here. The utmost uh, warm welcome that we received here. You said there were two sides to the coin. What's the other yeah. side? It sounds like your ha- your kids are, generally speaking, happy for now. But what's the other side of the coin yeah. for you? Uh, well, uh, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely not happy because... Uh, I don't feel like I can be a financial burden for Germany, and I don't want to be that financial burden. Uh, so in a, about a month, I'm about to search for a job, and uh, I cannot do that scientific work uh, here as I was doing in Lviv. Uh, the the guide has to feel the place with the heart, and I'm just right. just looking around. But we hope that. Um, in two, three or four months, the war will be over. We hope so. Uh, And I'm about to take the underqualified job in the hotel or tourism industry. Mm -hmm. And part of my salary would go to Ukrainian army. And I can be a soldier here. Well, Ivanka... When this war does eventually end, do you see yourself moving back to Lviv one day? Um, I hope yes. I hope yes. I'm determined so. I know that life is unpredictable, but I hope that I'll have the chance to come back to Ukraine because Ukraine needs me and I need it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That is Ivanka Honak recently a tour guide in Lviv, speaking to us from southern Germany, where she now lives. Thank you so much for being with us again, Ivanka. Thank you so much as well. Florida's governor signed a controversial bill today. It bans all instruction on sexual identity or gender in schools from kindergarten through third grade. It's called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Critics call it the, quote, don't say gay bill, and it's drawn national attention to Florida, including last night at the Academy Awards from co-host Wanda Sykes. For you people in Florida, we're going to have a gay night. Gay, 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 gay. NPR's Greg Allen has more. 
Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill today before an audience of students and supporters at a charter school near Tampa. It takes aim at how schools deal with sexual orientation and gender identity. He says the bill, now law, is about ensuring parents are involved in the education, health care, and well-being of their children. I don't care what corporate media outlets say. I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I'm not backing down. DeSantis and other supporters of the new law say the label Don't Say Gay is deliberately misleading. Although the law bans instruction dealing with sexual orientation, they say students and even teachers can use the word gay if it's an informal classroom discussion. DeSantis charges that opponents are hiding what he calls their true intentions. They support sexualizing kids in kindergarten. They support injecting woke gender ideology into second grade classrooms. Democrats and civil rights groups say the law is an attack on the LGBTQ community. Here's Joe Saunders with the advocacy group Equality Florida. It stigmatizes the LGBTQ community, chills efforts to create inclusive school environments, and isolates LGBTQ young people who are already at staggeringly higher risk of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation than their peers. Saunders believes by signing the law, DeSantis hopes to build his support among Republican voters in a possible bid for the 2024 presidential nomination. The law goes into effect July 1st, but is likely to face legal challenges. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Philadelphia broke its all-time record for homicides last year. So the police department there is trying a new strategy focused on the shootings that don't kill anyone. How that strategy will work tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up on All Things Considered, looking back at a year of Texas's Operation Lone Star, the effort to crack down on people crossing the border illegally. In business news, new figures show the state added nearly 15,000 jobs last month, dropping the unemployment rate slightly. State Office of Labor and Workforce Development reports the unemployment rate fell to 4.7 percent in February, down from 4.8 percent in January. Nearly every sector saw growth, with the exception of financial activities and professional and business services. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. Dow was up 94 points at 34,955. Nasdaq rose 185 points to 14,354. And the S&P 500 gained 32 points to end the day at 4,575. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. Right now it's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan. A wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Could see a snow shower in the early evening with temperatures down in the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies. Highs should be in the upper 30s. Right now, 28 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. I, I hope 
maybe it's some months, maybe some years. I don't understand now nothing. The, when our uh, war uh, finish, I will go to home. If I can, of course. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell. And I'm Elsa Chang. It has been a year since Texas launched Operation Lone Star. That is Governor Greg Abbott's hardline border crackdown on undocumented immigration. To mark the anniversary earlier this month, Governor Abbott gushed about its achievements. Operation Lone Star has apprehended more than 200,000 illegal immigrants. That includes more than 9,000 felony charges and more than 11,000 criminal arrests. Those numbers that Abbott just touted make it sound like Operation Lone Star is working as intended. But how real are those numbers? Well, that is what Loami Creel dug into in a recent story for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So before we get into those specific numbers, can you just first explain what the overall goal is of Operation Lone Star? So Texas Governor Greg Abbott said it was to stop the flow of drugs and migrants into the state. And so the operation started off small in South Texas, but then massively ballooned over the past year. Okay, so what did you actually find when you started examining these numbers that the state is announcing for all the arrests of undocumented immigrants and drug seizures? What we found during our investigation was that their claims of success has been based on shifting metrics, that included crimes with no connection to the border, work conducted by troopers stationed there prior to the operation, and arrests and drug seizures that don't clearly distinguish the state's role from other agencies. Okay, so if you start subtracting the cases that you found questionable, how many cases are we talking about here that were a result of Operation Lone Star? We know that the numbers that the governor is citing doesn't take into consideration the more than 2,000 charges they later removed in December after we started asking them about it. Hmm. And of that number, the felonies that he is citing, many of those crimes occurred hundreds of miles from the border and have no connection to the border or illegal immigration. The crime that does have a tie to illegal immigration is prosecuting migrants for trespassing across private ranches. It's a misdemeanor, and that misdemeanor makes up about 40% of the operation since July. Huh. And how did the state explain what you found? The state explained to us that they were instructed last July to start counting most crimes in a 63-county region that is almost the size of Oregon. And those crimes, they said, were related to the border mission because it is within that area of interest for them. But when we delved a little bit deeper, we found many crimes that had absolutely no link to the border. Well, putting aside these potentially inflated numbers, is this program in any way actually slowing down illegal immigration or drug smuggling in Texas in any trackable way? Like, is there any credit that this program does does deserve? So not according to the metrics that we have been able to measure. For instance, the number of immigrants crossing into Texas hasn't particularly slowed down while the operation has been in effect. 
So, you know, the, the governor and the state claim that they're making a dent in human smuggling, drug trafficking, and, and deterrence, but that is not what we have been able to find so far. That is Loami Creel, a reporter with the ProPublica Texas Tribune Investigative Unit. This investigation was co-published with the Marshall Project. Thanks very much for your reporting. Thanks so much for having me. In the 1800s, the man known as the father of gynecology advanced the field through painful experiments on enslaved women. Now, three of those women, known by the names Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, are being celebrated as the mothers of gynecology. Recently, women's health professionals gathered at an art installation made in their honor. Cristela Guerra has more from Montgomery, Alabama. Are you ready? ready to walk? Yeah. Yeah. Don't let nobody Artist Michelle Browder leads the women in a song as they walk to the park, gathering in a circle around these towering mothers. On their bodies are names like Angela Davis, Serena Williams. Words like beauty and resilience are welded to their sides, while African beads adorn their necks. All of these women are bigger than life for me, right? So Anarka is 15 feet tall. Betsy is about, I think she's 12, and, and Lucy is nine feet tall. Anarka's hips are crafted from the spades of shovels. She faces the sky, defiant and hopeful. At the center of her body, her womb is a chasm for the world to see. Visitors place flowers at the feet of the sculptures. This is, after all, what doulas and midwives do. They protect mothers. We see our clients in this art. And we see the losses, we see the victories, we see the ones that make it just by the skin of their teeth. Um, and we see the fear. It's, it's all here. It's all here. It's all here. Denise Bolds, president of Doulas of North America, or Dona International, and former president Reve Sinclair want to empower families, to provide comfort, to see problems others might ignore, to call out the truth, which is that black mothers die in childbirth at disproportionate rates, and are three to four times more likely to suffer complications during pregnancy. I had a mother message me this morning. She says, I have seven days to my expected due date. And I said, you made it, and you will continue to make it. She's with us because she's afraid to die. And that's it, not on our watch. Brothers thought about Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy since she was 18. That's when she learned about how a white doctor named J. Marion Sims experimented on the bodies of enslaved black women without anesthesia. He claimed to have cured them of ailments that arose from pregnancy. So Browder took the tool he invented, the speculum, and created a tiara for Betsy's head. They were birthed out of pain, but also because I wanted to change the narrative. I wanted to change the conversation about black women in this country and what we have to contribute in the infant mortality rate and reproductive justice and maternal health. Conversations happened over two days inside Old Ship AME Zion Church. The conference was called the Day of Reckoning. They listened to Deirdre Cooper Owens, a historian of U.S. slavery medicine, describe how this legacy of medical racism persists. And so the embodied experiences of the legacy of medical racism is that we're not believed. We're thought to be able to withstand pain more. And class doesn't protect you. Education doesn't protect you. Your relationship status doesn't protect you. One of the last speakers was Charles Johnson, an Atlanta-based father who began the nonprofit For Kira for Moms after the loss of his wife from hemorrhage following the birth of their second son. 
In 2018, Johnson worked with lawmakers to pass the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act, which provides funding to better investigate and review incidents of maternal mortality. As we work to protect women and babies and put it into the maternal mortality crisis, it's also equally as important, if not more as important, that we protect our history and that these stories are told. There's a line Michelle Browder uses for the mothers of gynecology. It's from the playwright Antezaki Shange's work for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. It reads, let her be born. Let her be born and handled warmly. For NPR News, I'm Cristela Guerra. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Vivaldi's Gloria and JS and CPE Bach, Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life, fairbankandperry.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, providing insight on the practical steps needed to prepare for a safe return to the workplace. Information and reports on mparchitectsboston.com.